This time, what's changed Boris's mind about Iran? Putin's making post-presidency plans, but will he still be pulling the strings in Russia? Why is Turkey sending Syrians to fight in Libya? And millennials worry about war. I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP. This week, the UK changed its policy on nuclear peace talks with Iran. Previously, Britain was supporting the 2015 plan for talks with Iran to limit expansion of its nuclear energy programme abandoned by America. But Prime Minister Boris Johnson is now suggesting US President Donald Trump should broker a brand new deal. Well, let's talk to Higar Shamali, who is a former spokesperson for the US mission to the United Nations. Hello, Higar. Um, President Hassan Rouhani of Iran has said if the UK, Germany and France pull out of the deal that their soldiers would be vulnerable to attack. A predictable reaction or a serious threat? Well, I think I, I agree with you it's a predictable reaction, but I don't think it's a very smart move on his part. And the reason for that is that the Europeans have been really the steadfast group holding on to the nuclear deal, calling on the Iranians to stay in it, even following the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the first thing the EU foreign policy chief said was, for the, was to call on Iran to stay in the nuclear deal. And so the Europeans have placed a significant priority on that deal, rightfully so. And, and for that reason, I actually, I viewed the move by the UK, France and Germany to uh, invoke the dispute resolution in the Iran agreement uh, as, as a last-ditch effort to save the deal. And so for President Rouhani to react that way, almost as, you know, flexing his muscles and as though he's threatening the Europeans, is not, a, is, not a threat, is not a smart move. It would be in his interest to cooperate. Just explain to us what this invoking this dispute resolution actually means in practice. Sure. So um, I'm glad you asked. I actually worked on the Iran deal when I was at the U.S. Treasury Department before my time at the, at the U.S. Mission to the U.N. Um, the dispute resolution is a line allowing any parties of the agreement to, uh, to, to formally complain that Iran is in violation of the deal. So once that complaint happens, it goes to a joint commission. That joint commission includes all the parties of the deal, which means that everybody is included, obviously, right now, except for the United States, which abdicated from the deal. Uh, almost two years ago. And, um, and so that commission will meet to try and reach a resolution. If no resolution is, meet, is met within 15 days, that, uh, that time frame can be extended another 15 days up until 60 days, but no more than 60 days. Uh, in that time frame, if there's no resolution, then the complaint, those who filed the complaint initially, meaning in this case the UK, France, and Germany, would then have to formally lodge a complaint with the UN Security Council to declare Iran in violation of the deal. And after that, it's pretty much a fait accompli. What happens is, if once that complaint is lodged, the UN Security Council must vote on a resolution in order not to reimpose the UN sanctions against Iran, meaning that the sanctions would automatically snap back unless mm. all of the Security Council agrees, right? And, and what I mean by all the Security Council, I mean that there's no veto. And given the United States' view on the deal and, and Iran's behavior, I highly doubt that they would accept uh, a resolution not reimposing sanctions on Iran. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, as you mentioned, President Trump already pulled out of the deal. Um, the Europeans still in it as we stand. Why do you think the UK is questioning it, questioning it now? I found it actually interesting that Prime Minister Boris Johnson had mentioned that he was hopeful that President Trump 
would pursue a deal. And the reason I found it interesting is because based on my following the situation, based on my sources in the U.S. government, of which I still maintain many, um, that doesn't, that's not entirely the number one goal for the Trump administration. Their number one goal vis-a-vis Iran and, and based on their maximum pressure campaign is largely focused on siphoning off the funds that go from Iran, specifically the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, to the terrorist proxies and militias uh, and other groups across the region that promote instability, right? So Hezbollah, Hamas, the Houthis in Yemen, certainly the militias in Iraq, of course their efforts in Syria to to back Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Given that that is the Trump administration's number one goal, pursuing Iran deal version 2.0 is really tertiary. Now, given how President Trump uh, pursues diplomacy, I, it wouldn't surprise me if, like, if as with Kim Jong-un, he, he says one day, you know, I, I'm happy to meet with mm-hmm. President Rouhani in, in, let's say, Switzerland. You know, I wouldn't be surprised. Nothing would surprise me at this okay. point. But it doesn't seem like we are anywhere close to a deal. And so I think mm-hmm. I, I understand why Prime Minister Johnson is saying, you know, perhaps we need to move the ball forward. But I don't think relying on a Trump-led deal is the right move. Let's bring in Professor Scott Lucas from the University of Birmingham. Professor Lucas, um, what's your take? on Boris Johnson suggesting a Trump deal this week. Is it all about cozying up to US post-Brexit for a good trade deal? It's keeping the US at arm's length while the Europeans try to maintain a line open to Iran. And by that, I know Boris Johnson's smart enough to know how you play to Donald Trump's ego. And that is, oh, come in, Mr. Trump. You're the, you're the deal maker. You know, do like you've been trying to do with North Korea. The fact is, is that you know, as we've just heard, the U.S. government really has no intention of putting together a new deal. They're really trying to, in effect, break uh, the Iranian regime. And so Boris Johnson is a little bit for show. What is substance is that U.K., French, German move you've been describing, which on the surface is the threat of the snapback sanctions, the U.N. sanctions, but really is a message to Tehran, which is, all right, this is your chance now to negotiate not only getting back into the nuclear deal, but an economic link where we will buy some of your oil. We will bypass some of the U.S. sanctions if you are in full compliance. Mm. So in other words, whereas you might say, oh, Boris Johnson's cozying up to Donald Trump, it's actually buying space to do the opposite, which is to find a way not to be tied down to the U.S. sanctions in its pursuit of possible regime change. So what do you think will happen, Scott? It's really up to the Iranians in a way, because we were here back in February, uh, 11 months ago, the European Union launched this mechanism uh, to start buying Iranian oil and other goods and commodities known as Instex. The Iranians rejected it. They rejected certain conditions, such as the EU criticizing uh, their missile research and development program, really saying, we need to talk about this, guys. They criticized Iranian activities in the Middle East, think Iraq, think Syria, think Yemen. And they criticized Iran's alleged involvement in bomb and assassination plots in Europe. And in particular, with the Iranian military being so sensitive about opening up any of those areas, the government rejected instincts. Now, will the Iranians who face deep economic problems right now, who face protest over those issues, will they climb down and negotiate with the Europeans or will they risk isolation, in which case there will be UN sanctions? And the Europeans may have to move closer to Washington as a default position. Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is listening to this. Christopher? It's interesting talking in the Foreign Office to the regional district uh, departments. They're starting now talking, more recently, talking about Iran. And so you 
get in, for example, South America. People saying in the department about South in South America that uh, the Iranians are setting up groups. I mean, they're not revolutionary groups; that they're setting active groups in, say, South America, Africa. There are 11 different Iranian groups operating in Africa, according to the State Board in the Africa Department at the moment. And this is something you haven't heard before, and it's almost as if the United Kingdom is is following a line that let's not just see this as something that's going on in the Middle East. And they're, they're adopting a line that uh, Iran or its or or, or its or its uh, acolytes have a bigger threat not just the United Kingdom, but areas in which the United Kingdom have an interest in. Uh, Higash Mali, um, this is all at the base of it, to stop Iran creating nuclear weapons, a nuclear bomb. How much hope is there of doing that, and how do you go about it? Well, the best hope for that was through the Iran deal, obviously. And and the while the good news is that Iran, there is still time before that, even with, with Iran via, in violation of the deal, um, they are still a ways away, but it's still a, it's still a very real threat, and it, it needs to be paid attention to. Um, I think, you know, what you have now with the steps that Iran has taken to to, to violate the deal, which is to enrich their to to enrich their uranium even further. That uranium, by enriching it further, is they're trying to get it to the grade needed for a nuclear weapon. And then, um, and then by increasing its stockpile, right? So by, by increasing the stockpile, you also face that threat. So while given the progress made because of the deal, because of the inspections, because of centrifuges that had been um, t- taken down and such, or, or, dis- or at least um, placed on hold, if you will, um, given that things are not in a, a, a situation of a major crisis right now, but we, there's certainly no need to get to that point again, given the work that's been, that's been done. I just, at the same time, I, do, I would say, you know, this is an election year for President Trump. I don't see him pursuing this deal or a deal mm-hmm. as, as high on his priority list. I think at a certain point he's going to focus more heavily on the election and in the United States foreign policy doesn't feature very high for voters um mm-hmm. and so i just and and at that same time so i don't see him turning to this if there was even a chance for iran deal version 2.0 i don't see him turning to it unless he wins a second term all right higashimali thank you very much that was higashimali former spokesperson for the u.s mission to the united nations now vladimir putin has once again set british spooks and russia watchers a puzzle he's supposed to resign in four years time but yesterday he changed the rules yes Yet again. For the moment, he stays president, but in 2024, the new president will not have as much power, but he will, in some grander job, which he just hasn't quite yet explained. So what's going on? Former Kremlin advisor Alexander Nekrasov joins me along with BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee, still here. Um, so, Alexander, Vladimir Putin just come up with an idea so that he can keep power. Nobody will be powerful enough to stop him then. Uh, hello. Uh, well, it, it's, 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 it's very unclear, to be honest with you, what is going on. Because uh, uh, yesterday we've seen the whole of the parliament sitting there, smiling and listening to a state of the nation address, was, uh, which was absolutely empty, uh, not, contained nothing in it. And then suddenly, after he finished the speech, he announced... He announces that the government is being um, is resigning and the, and he's uh, sacking the prime minister, his close ally. Now, the first thing that people need to understand 
is that a change of prime minister means a change of vice president. The prime minister automatically becomes president if something happens to Putin. So we see a change at the top on a very high level. And the new person who came in, nobody really knows about him very much. He was the head of the tax service, federal tax service. And um, technically, the feeling is that he is only a temporary figure, that something is going on and somebody else will come out, emerge as the successor to Putin. But so, do, you, do you see this, Alexander, as uh, President Putin paving the way for keeping power beyond 2024? Well, I think it's too early to say that. I think the point we, uh, we, which we can it's see... It's not too early to think that, though, if you're President well, Putin, we, is we, it? Well, we can make any, any sort of guesses here. The point is that from the point of view of uh, public relations, this was a disaster for Putin. Because what happened is that put people now, rumors have started spreading uh, across Moscow and, the, uh, and Russia. People are saying whether it was a coup and he stopped the coup. This is very bad for any government. You have to prepare such things. You can't just come out and say, I'm going to change everything, I'm going to change the rules of the game, I'm going to sack everybody. This doesn't work like that. This is not, you know, this is a new Russia. This is not Russia of the Tsars of the communists. People are there are, are different. So I, I, I've been listening to the comments by you know, uh, all sorts of people on Russian YouTube, which, by the way, is much more exciting <laughs> than the English-speaking YouTube. And already I can see that people are making conclusions which are not healthy, mm. that uh, this is a, a bad idea. I, I am quite amazed that the boys in the Kremlin didn't think this through. But some people suspect that not many people knew about this whole decision, which to me says that Putin feels insecure. Because if you're secure and you feel, you know, you've got uh, support and, and your people are everywhere and they support you, you don't do things like that. You at least give a chance to, you know, consultations, you sort of give uh, some sort of a sign that things are going to change. But this suddenness, this tells me that there isn't stability in the Kremlin. Alexandra's interesting um, um, thought here about NATO, places like that, certainly down in the Defence Ministry. It's just like the old days when a Russian leader does something and everybody scratches and says, right, we have to call a meeting, discover, is it a threat that what he's done? It's, it, it's, it's almost like the Cold War thinking. Uh, nobody, I was at something this morning, nobody was asking the simple question. Perhaps in there is an idea of Putin's that he's going to go down to Sochi and that's where he's going to retire because he likes it down there after the Winter Olympics, etc. And they've got a nice palace being built. And maybe he's going to sit there and say, well, I don't want when I go. I don't want somebody to become president like me and have the power that I've got. So I'm going to change the rules now. So I'm going to leave whoever gets the big job and could, after all, look into some of my files, won't have the power to, be, to, to change things. And maybe Putin is, I know, he's not softening in his old age, dear heart, <laughs> but there is this sort of sense that we should be asking the other questions. We're not. 
Well, uh, I think it's too early to, for us to say anything because it's just happened. I think, as I said, it's not a good sign, you know, when things are dramatic like that. But generally, I think there is a crisis of government across the world. And I don't think that Russia stands out in this respect. If you look at America, it's going through turmoil with this man in the White House. If you look at Europe, God knows what's going on there. And uh, it, it's, not, it, it's like a chain, you know, it's like a part of this chain where a change has to come, not just to Russia, a change has to come everywhere. We have absolutely no system of security, international system of security. It doesn't work anymore. The UN is a joke. So this whole system has to change, and we see those strange things happening, and the Russia included, and I think this is part of this puzzle that has to be resolved by a new generation of politicians. Because in Russia, you know, we still have the old generation, the Cold War Soviet-style generation, who think in different terms. I think, you know, we, we have to have new blood in Russia. We have to have new blood in America as well, because America looks very, very weird nowadays. It's one way so, of saying it. Um, Professor Scott Lucas from the University of Birmingham is still with us. Uh, Professor Scott Lucas, how, how do you see this? Well, I think that's been great from Alexander Nekrasov in the sense that we don't have certainty here. Paradoxically, even if that's what Vladimir Putin was trying to introduce, look, you have all these changes, you can trust me. What he's introduced is a lot of moving pieces. Let's just consider a few. Uh, how does the Duma respond uh, to this? How does the new state council, if it's reformed, respond? Does it actually say it will be under Putin's guidance, under his supervision, or do they kick back against him? How does Mr. Medvedev respond, who was replaced as prime minister? How does the new president, who was elected in 2024, respond? Is he just going to be Putin's man? In other words, if Putin was trying to arrange a system in which he maintains a lot of influence, mm. this isn't like the old days where there's a clear communist party, there's a clear organization, and you stay in effectively as a leader for life. We have seen other leaders like President Erdogan of Turkey rewrite the rules of the system to give themselves almost perpetual rule. But I think to assume that Putin is going to do this or be able to do this, that's uncertain. And let me add one other thing, same what Christopher Lee has, has talked about. I think the effect is, however, that as much concern as we might have what Russia has been doing in Eastern Europe, what it's been doing in the Middle East, the effect of this is, is that Russia may have to, as it were, this is an internal crisis or an internal issue, and it may actually pull back on some of those immediate issues of conflict we've been facing in the re, uh, in recent years. On that note, Alexander Nekrasov, do you think any of this will have an impact on Russian foreign policy? Well, I, it's difficult to say now. I think that Russian foreign policy is a very vague idea because a lot of things are being said about huge successes by Putin uh, in foreign policy. I don't see those successes. I personally think he has been suffering quite a lot of failures. And if you look at the way Russian relations developed with the neighboring countries, it's an absolute disaster. And I think the, the, the way it's, it's going on, it's not that Putin is succeeding. It's the West that is failing. He's using the West weaknesses and uh, makes it look as if it's his advantages. But if you look carefully at what he has achieved, be it Syria, be it Ukraine, where it's a disaster, he hasn't actually achieved much. So I don't really understand how Russia poses a huge danger uh, in the Middle East, Africa, or in Europe. 
if Russia is actually uh, failing in its major, major foreign policy initiatives, and now we're witnessing another disaster unraveling with Belarus, where relations are absolutely uh, went through the floor, and we can see another Ukraine, basically, and nothing is said about this, and nothing was said by Putin in his uh, okay. State of the Nation address. Uh, it's, a, it's a very, very um, uncertain time for Russian foreign policy, I would say. On that note, we'll leave it there for today. Alexander Nekrasov, thank you very much. Very interesting there. And Professor Scott Lucas. Fighting is continuing in Libya with reports that Turkey has sent 2,000 Syrian fighters to the country. Talks in Moscow earlier this week collapsed when the opposition general, the warlord General Khalifa Haftar, walked out. Well, this weekend there's another attempt at negotiations in Germany. Let's talk to a writer on Libya, Mary Fitzgerald. Mary, hello. Why is Turkey sending Syria troops to Libya? Well, the, there's been a lot of speculation over the number of Syrian fighters um, that uh, on their way are having already been so sent to So you think 2,000 may not be the case then, Mary? Well, that, those are the latest reports uh, in The Guardian citing Syrian sources. Uh, we know that at least hundreds have arrived in, in recent weeks um, via Turkey uh, to basically fight on the anti-Haftar side uh, with forces aligned with the UN-recognized government. When those reports first started surfacing a few weeks ago, the reaction of the um, Government of National Accord side was essentially, well, you know, we have have been abandoned and we uh, need all the help we can get to try and push uh, Haftar back. But this, of course, injects a very dangerous dynamic into an already multinational war. There are Sudanese and Chadian mercenaries on the ground in Libya. There are Russian mercenaries uh, fighting on Haftar's side, as well as the the states that are intervening uh, to, to back the respective parties in the conflict. So it has become an incredibly complex uh, conflict, and the Syrian fighters inject a further dangerous dynamic. And because it's so complicated and complex, can you just remind us of the different state interests in Libya? Well, um, this uh, war in and around Tripoli was launched by Haftar in in April. Um, He tried to capture the city from the UN-recognized government. He promised that battle would be swift and bloodless. And here we are uh, 10 months later with over 2,000 dead and 200,000 displaced. On Haftar's side, backing him are the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, Saudi Arabia and France. On the um, other side, the UN-recognized government in Tripoli side, you have uh, Turkey, you have uh, Qatar, and uh, you have two lesser degrees um, European countries that are still um, recognizing, if you like, the GNA, but starting to um, distance itself as well. So these talks in Germany, uh, one of the main aims is to try and get all the different countries with their different interests to stop uh, meddling, if you like, in Libya. Is that possible? Well, this uh, Berlin uh, conference this weekend is a culmination of several months of efforts by German diplomats. But the problem is that the momentum, the diplomatic momentum, has really been taken away from the Europeans in recent weeks with the Russian-Turkish initiative that managed um, to get uh, both sides to agree to a ceasefire this past weekend. That ceasefire 
remains shaky that all that it is, but it still remains. But what um, happened on Monday was in Moscow an effort to consolidate that ceasefire into some uh, into a longer lasting truce essentially failed because mm. Hafta refused to sign um, the agreement on the table. That said, the Russians insist that they want to follow through with this initiative that they've started with with Turkey. And it has shown that basically the influence that the Russians and the Turks have over the the factions involved in this project is greater at this present moment than the European influence. Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is here too. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting to see one particular thing, and that is Turkey is sending not Turkish troops, it's sending uh, Syrian troops, uh, which it uses uh, anyway uh, for, for, for far more sort of local in, in engagements. Um, the number of 2,000 came up simply because that's the ambition. It's not if we can get 2,000 troops together. You send, say, a couple uh, of 100, and they're the, they're the uh, early warning troops. They get there, they get things set up. It does take this sort of time to actually get a, a large force together. And when it, it does arrive, they've really got to uh, sort out one of the main problems, who actually commands those troops. You can't just say, well, we're sending them off to, uh, to, to, to support the United Nations position or, or whatever. It's got to have a command system, otherwise the whole thing doesn't work. That is quite a complicated, a complicated system to get into. The Russians have not sent Russian troops. Um, the Russians have actually, have actually okayed the deployment, uh, a short deployment of uh, an organization called Wagner. And Wagner is a... Is a, a I... Yes, I have to interject there, though, just to clarify a few matters. First of all, the Syrian fighters, uh, Turkey has actually um, denied that they are in Libya. The Turkish parliament um, approved the deployment of Turkish forces proper um, uh, just very recently, and they have already started to deploy. We see a similar dynamic here in terms of Turkey's engagement and the Russian engagement because the Russian okay. mercenaries that are on the ground, Putin oh. has said there's they have nothing to do with the Russian state. So there's an element of that kind of plausible deniability on both the Turkish side and the Russian side in terms of the Syrian fighters, but also the mercenaries from Wagner. People in London are saying that the uh, as far as the Turkish concerned, the uh, the Syrian there are there are uh, two hundred at the moment, and this okay. is the, this is the pre pre deployment force. We will have to leave that hanging for the moment. Mary Fitzgerald, thank you very much for your time today. Now, the majority of millennials see catastrophic war as a real possibility. That's according to a survey by the International Committee of the Red Cross, which has asked more than sixteen thousand twenty to thirty five year olds for their views on war. Well, Nisha Nishat is a legal advisor with the ICRC, and she's also a millennial. Good to speak to you today. Um, this isn't just UK millennials you've asked, is it? No, not at all. Um, uh, hi, Mary. Nice to that. Thanks for for having me, and it's nice to be here. That no, it's not just UK millennials. It's sixteen thousand millennials from over uh, sixteen countries. Half of those that have a conflict in their territory, and a half of those that don't. So it's not just the UK. And were the results different from different countries? Uh, on some situa- uh, on some questions, yes, um, and on other questions, not. So, for instance, when we look at the results from uh, on nuclear weapons, we see that the the respondents, whether they were in countries in peacetime or countries in conflict, uh, all overwhelmingly said that they didn't 
um, find the use of nuclear weapons acceptable and interestingly, in any circumstances. Interestingly, yeah. UK millennials seem particularly worried about a third world war. Were you surprised by that? Um, I mean, in a, a lot of millennials around the world are worried about a third world war, I think. And I, I think that the, the question about the third world war, as well as some of the other questions um, that we asked and the responses we got, indicate a sort of anxiety generally about what's going to happen, um, say, in the next 10 years. Um, so there, the, the third world war question, as well as the, the question about whether uh, millennials think that nuclear weapons will be used in the next 10 years, uh, more than half of them thought that it's likely that they will be used. And, so there seems to be some kind of anxiety. And just very briefly, as a millennial yourself, was there anything that surprised you? Briefly, please. Um, I, I think the, the findings on torture surprised me a little bit. I was surprised that my cohort found torture acceptable. Mm. Um, uh, I was surprised by how many people thought it was okay. All right, we will have to leave it there. Uh, Nisha Nishat, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, and that's it for this week. My thanks to all of our guests and to you for listening. Join the discussion.